Well, we're going to continue through our, our, our series here in uh, 1 Timothy as, you know, Paul's letter to his protege, Timothy. There is he's writing this. And we're doing a verse-by-verse study, and when we break down the verses, sometimes we see things that normally we do not see. Well, last week I preached on Paul's introductory instructions to Timothy in which he instructed him to, to guard the gospel you know, against false teachers and unnecessary distractions. Well, before he could even continue with his argument there, Paul sidetracks to his own personal experience of God's good news of Jesus Christ here. Well, in this passage that we're about to read, before he writes anything else to Timothy, Paul gets very personal in a statement of thanksgiving and gratitude for everything that God has done in his life. Now, if you've been reading 1 Timothy with us, you know, this seems like kind of an abrupt transition. I mean, it's just kind of really quick. You know, you have kind of an introductory uh, instruction about false teachers and, and a charge to Timothy to guard the gospel, you know, from the false gospel. And then at the mention of these false teachers here, Paul cannot help but be reminded of the 11th verse there that is written, you know, of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which he had been entrusted. Now, what we have here is sort of an opening of the soul of Paul. We get to see right down into his heart here in verse 12. And then as this passage, it just kind of crescendos, you know, so that by verse 17, Paul is singing. So this is kind of an odd place, and I mean, it just changes kind of abruptly. So let's read this passage together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly, in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who, were, who believe in him for eternal life. To the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I think this passage can basically be divided up into two parts here. Just two simple parts. Paul's story and Paul's song here. And then to apply this to our lives, what he says about your past and your praise, you know, and that's our map for today. That's, that's what we're going to do in this message. So today, let's look at what Paul says about Paul's story here. And let's walk through this passage, and we'll see that what he says about his own experience of God's grace. Well, first of all, in verse 12, and if you noticed in your outline there, you've got these scripture there, and we'll be referring back and forth to them, so you may want to kind of follow us along in the scripture, because most of the points or the comments I make will come directly from there. Well, um, 
So let's, let's, let's see what he has to say. First of all, in verse 12, I was appointed to Christ's service. Now, the word Paul uses here is diakonos, you know, meaning a servant of the church of God and of the gospel. Now, the wonder of this is almost overwhelming to Paul. Now, can you put yourself in actually Saul's place at this particular point in his life. Put yourself in his position right now. You know, you know he's got to be thinking, how did I ever get this job? You know, that's why he says, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, because he has appointed me. And even more shockingly, you know, is what comes next. He says, Christ appointed me, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolvent opponent, meaning that, you know, he was showing a rude and arrogant lack of respect here. He goes on to illustrate. First of all, Paul says, I was a blasphemer. You know, he was speaking, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was speaking against Jesus and the apostles everywhere he went. You know, and he was labeling the work of God as the work of Satan, and he was slandering the church. In other words, at that point in time, um, Saul was no friend of the church, of Christians. And secondly, Paul was, he was very violent. You know, he was breathing out murderous threats against the, the disciples thinking in his own mind to purify the Jewish religion of the contagion called Christianity. He thought he was doing the right thing here, but he wasn't. You know, Paul went and he arrested men and women, and he had them thrown into prison. And the picture we get of this, when you look at, when you look at this, the picture you kind of visualize in your own mind is, uh, of Paul is that he was a very angry man out on a mission of vengeance because of his zeal for the law. Now remember, if you remember the story, Paul was standing there at Stephen's death saying, here, let me hold your coat for you, you know, while they stoned him. You know, Jesus warned his disciples in John the 16th chapter in verse 2, saying, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Well, let me tell you something. That's exactly what Paul was doing here. He thought he was serving God, but, uh, you know, by eradicating Christians. He thought he was doing right. And third, Paul, he was filled with pride. He says, I was an insolent opponent. You know, so the word here is um, hubristes. That's the, that's the Greek word. It means to treat someone spitefully or in such a way as to bring shame upon them. Now, the root word is hubris. You know, we get, often we use in our English vocabulary to speak of pride or, or arrogance. You know, the sense we get from this word is that Paul, he was trampling on people. He was just running over them. You know, he was just showing his strength. Well, Paul, he was also, he was arrogant. Now, the word here is agneo. You know, from where we get our word agnostic, meaning without knowledge. Paul says, Christ had mercy on me because I acted in ignorance. You know, he was doing violence out of ignorance. He was doing blaspheming, or he was blaspheming out of ignorance. You know, he was trampling on people out of ignorance. You know, he had zeal, but no knowledge. He had plenty of zeal, but not the right knowledge here. At this time, Paul, he did not know that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He didn't know that. You know, and you can be sincerely 
You can be sincerely trying to please God, but if you're ignorant or if you don't believe or if you just don't know who Jesus is, you'll say ignorant things. You'll say blasphemous things. You know, you'll trample on other people simply because you don't know who Jesus is. You know, Paul concludes that even though he was very zealous here in his past life in, in the persecution of Christians, he was blasphemous and he was sinful because he was ignorant of the truth of who Jesus is. He just did not know. He had zeal, but no knowledge. And if you'll remember before King Agrippa in Acts the 26th chapter, Paul confessed, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Here again, zeal, but no knowledge. You know, when Paul was persecuting Christians, no doubt in his own mind, he thought he was doing God's work until he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's when it changed. You know, he even made, he had letters, you know, from the temple guard. He was on his way to arrest and kill Christians. He did not know that he was sinning. But suddenly, this inconvenient truth that Jesus was alive, it caused him to rethink everything. And that opened up his eyes to the fact that it was indeed Jesus himself whom Saul was persecuting. And if you'll, you'll know, in Acts, the ninth chapter, you know, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, you know, why do you persecute me? Jesus Christ, he blinded Saul, and he spent three days just groping around until God sent Ananias, who was equally freaked out by all of this, whom God gave words to speak to Paul. Now, in Acts 9 chapter, in verse 15, says, You are my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and, and the children of Israel. Now, put yourself in this picture at this particular time. Can you just imagine? Now, knowing that Ananias knew who Saul was, he knew what kind of man he was and what he was doing. Can you imagine Ananias hardly being able to just get out the, wor the words out of his mouth. You are God's chosen instrument? <laughs> what? You know, I mean, what is going on here? You know, this is the one, you are the one God chose or Jesus chose to appoint to his service. How in the world can we get to this conclusion? Can you just imagine what was going through Ananias' mind here? You know, even Paul's mind at this particular point. Imagine you're an employer and you're flipping through applications. Do you give the job to a person who's violent and ignorant and slanderous and prideful? Is that the one you're going to give the job to? You know, it'd be one thing. You know, it's one thing for God to forgive Saul for what he did, but it's quite another thing um, for God to uh, appoint Saul. This is a big step. God says, I'm not just going to forgive you and save you, but I'm going to make you the greatest preacher in the history of the world. When you stop and think about his story, this is what's going on here. Now, a question that I think we all, if we're a student of the scriptures, we all have to ask ourselves, how in the world did Paul get appointed to the service of Christ? How in the world did that happen? Well, the second part of verse 13 gives us the answer. And it says this, but I received mercy 
because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was poured out abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, he says this twice, I receive mercy. He says it here, and he says it again in verse 16. Now, mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is the other side of the coin there, getting what we don't deserve. Now, Paul is saying, I did not get the punishment I deserved. Paul understood that. He knew what he was. He said, I did not get the punishment that I deserved. And this incredible appointment that Christ has given me is beyond just anything that I can imagine. I couldn't even conceive of it. You know, there's no way in Hades that I deserve this. I didn't deserve this appointment. God's grace, it was poured out on Paul abundantly. Now, the word here is hooper, meaning hyper or over, and uh, pelero, uh, meaning fulfill or complete, uh, hyper abundance. Now, the NIV, it translates this grace, it was poured out abundantly. The uh, English Standard Version says God's grace overflowed in Paul's life. Folks, this is what an encounter with the mercy and grace of God does in a person's heart. It exposes the evil inside of you. You ever think about it that way? You know, so the first grace that God gives us is a knowledge of sin. You ever thought about it that way? That's something to think about. You know, it may not seem like it at the time. It may seem like that God has just completely exposed what we hope would never, that what we would never have to face here. But that's how the gospel, that's how the good news of Jesus works in a person's <laughs> life. Let's move on to 15. It continues. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, we will see this phrase all throughout 1 Timothy. And this means that there are apparently a chosen or a collection of, of quotes or creedal statements or pithy sayings and teachings that were some, somewhat widely circulated during this time. It was common phrases to be used during this time. And what Paul is, is doing here is he's adding his stamp of approval that the saying that he's about to give us is a faithful representation of the gospel. That's what he's saying. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Now, for those of you that are familiar with statements like this, if you read the scriptures a lot, this really doesn't strike us. It really doesn't jump out like with neon lights, you know, and saying, look at me, there's something going on here. But I want you to remember who is saying this. When, when, you, when you look at that statement, remember who is saying it. This is coming from the lips of a Pharisee. You know, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised from the tribe of Benjamin, went, all to, went to all the right schools. He kept all the right laws. You know, he had the right Jewish pedigree here. But there was one thing that Pharisees did not do. And that is, they didn't hang out with sinners. That was different. Just read the Gospels and you'll see that, um, like in Luke, the fifth chapter, that it was scandalous to even eat with sinners. And when the Pharisees, when they really wanted to insult Jesus, they called him a friend of sinners, like in Matthew, the 11th chapter. 
And so it was just obvious to them that he could not be the Messiah. After seeing all this, they thought that this was pretty obvious. He could not be the Messiah because they figured the Messiah would be just like them and they would stay away from all the people, all these horrible people, and they would avoid the blasphemers and, and the persecutors and the evil men and violent men and violent women. So the very fact that this man was hanging out with tax collectors, the very fact that this man was staying the night with Zac at Zacchaeus' house, getting caught at the well with the woman who had five husbands and live-in lover at the time, he said, there is no possible way that this guy is anything but a fraud. That's what they, that's what they were thinking here. You see, the Pharisees, they missed the point. They always missed the point. Even modern-day Pharisees, they missed the point until God's grace changes their hearts. God turned the light on in Paul's heart. And Paul says, I am the worst of all sinners. And when he went through that list in verses 9 and 10, he said, my name is at the top of that. When I wrote that, I was describing myself. I am the chief of sinners. Jesus Christ came to save me. Now, the Greek word here is protos, meaning first. The older translations say sinners of whom I am chief. You know, now, when you think about Paul's situation here, kind of have an inclination to, to, you know, to think, well, Paul, you're just exaggerating here. You're not the worst. I mean, yeah, it's true. You did persecute and you did kill Christians, but you were just exercising the authority of the temple council. In other words, you were just doing your job here. He thought he was doing God's work. So, um, yes, you know, that was bad, you know, that you persecuted Christians and all of that. But maybe it's not that bad. You know, he wasn't a serial killer. He wasn't a child molester. You know, so did Paul really think that he was the worst of the sinners? You know, the absolute wickedest? Did he really think that? Well, to other places in Scripture where he says the same thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And the other passage of scriptures, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where it says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am to, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles um, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, when we see the word saint in the Bible there, sometimes we get confused because of the way the word sounds. But the truth of the matter is the word saint in the New Testament refers to all of God's people or all Christians. It don't just refer to like the super saints. 
but a saint is all of God's people here. And Paul is saying that out of all the Christians in the world, not just the super saints here, he says, I am the absolute worst here. And notice he does not say, I was the worst. He says, I am the worst. Now, this is not false humility when you say it that way. This is Saul recognizing the facts of the matter. You know, God's grace has given him a knowledge of his own heart, which is why in Romans he says, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the bad I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Note this. Now, understand, that's not before Paul became a Christian. This is afterwards here. Christ came to save sinners, not to help sinners, you know, not to induce sinners to find their own salvation, but he came to save sinners. Now, notice the second thing Paul says in this passage. He says, because I am the worst sinner, I am the best example. <laughs> you know, look at verse 16. Immediately after saying I'm the worst, Paul says I'm the best. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, the word here, for example, is hypotaposis. Um, and that word means to outline or to sketch or to draft a preliminary model. You know, the parts of this word are hyper and typos. Typos means a, a pattern or a type or typical, and hyper means above or super. So notice, Paul, he doesn't simply say, I am a typos. He says, I am a hypertopesis. In other words, I am the worst. I'm a super typos. Jesus saved me, the worst of all sinners, so that I could be an ultimate type of what every Christian is and an ultimate example of how far the patience of God goes. Now, I want you to notice something here, and usually we don't notice it, but when you start picking this verse apart, this is something you may want to put in your noodle a little bit and just let it marinate for a while. Notice that phrase, for this reason. Look at that, for this reason. That's an interesting phrase. I want to share with you something that maybe you've not thought about before. We often assume that God gave us his grace and his mercy to save us and to get us into heaven. But no, the reason God saved Paul was for his glory. The reason God saved Paul is to display his patience, his power, and his grace. Paul's benefits are secondary. Now, don't get me wrong. Those benefits are worth everything, but they are secondary. For this reason, I was saved. I was the worst possible sinner. God saved me, not so that I could go to heaven when I die, but so that I could be an example, so that I could be a living, breathing image of what? And the answer to that is his eternal patience here. You know, you know that your heart is beginning to understand the gospel when your focus moves off of what you get out of the deal to how God is glorified in the deal. 
That's something we ought to think about there, folks. Now, in Acts 26, you know, the risen Jesus says to Paul, he says, stop it. He says, stop kicking against the goats, basically. You know, God has been goading Saul and he's been um, pricking him. You know, how patient did God have to be with Saul before he transformed him into apostle to the Gentiles? How patient did God have to be? Now, you think back of who Paul was. How patient did God have to be there? Looking back over his life, Paul, he could see the patience of God goading him and preparing him and training him, you know, for Christ's service. Folks, the force of this passage is this. If you want to really get something out of this, if Paul can receive mercy and be appointed to Christ's service, then so can you and I. When you think about what the Apostle Paul's life was before he became a Christian, if God can use him, he can certainly use you and me. You know, Paul, he's a rough sketch, a, a super type, an example of all Christians. Folks, hear me on this. No one is beyond the grace of God. No one. Now, verse 17, it just kind of in, interrupts the train of thought here. You know, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What is verse 17 doing here? When you're reading this and you're seeing what all Paul's saying, and all of a sudden this verse pops up, you know, does it help the argument or does it advance the narrative here? Does it carry on with what's been saying? Well, no. And you think, well, this verse don't even belong here. You know, that's because it's an outburst. It's an outburst here. Paul can hardly think of how bad he is without exploding into praise to, to God for the mercy that God had on him. You know, when he was thinking about how bad he was, immediately it just jumps, you know, to the praise of God, of, of the mercy that God gave him. You see, Paul's story has now become Paul's song here. He just erupts into this lyrical outburst of praise. Many commentators say this is a song of worship. Well, he sings about who God is. God's eternal. He's timeless. You know, he's never ending. He's the God of the ages. He never expires. Nations rise and fall and generations come and go, but God remains. He's immortal. You know, he will never die. He'll never decay. Invisible, the only God. And generously, he makes this known to the most unlikely people like Paul and like me and you. He sings about what God deserves. You know, God deserves all the glory and all the honor and the power forever and ever. And Paul chooses to live his life, you know, appointed to his service and living for his glory in everything that he does. God deserves everything. You know, he withheld from us what we deserve. That's mercy. And he gave us what we do not deserve. That's grace. You know, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's Paul's story, and that's Paul's song. Because he is an example, and the scriptures tell us that he's an example for us, this leads us to a very naturally to think about the application here. What is the application? My story. What is my story? 
You know, if Paul is truly an example for all Christians everywhere as the worst of all sinners, that means a few things for us. And one thing it means is I am no different from those I consider the worst. I am no different from those I consider the worst. Tim Keller, he shares this analogy. He says, if you have two, you have two acorns and you plant both of them, one of them grows up to a mighty oak tree. The other withers and dies. Why? The soil, the environment. But the point is this, the same raw material exists in both of those acorns or both of those seeds. You know, in the same way, everyone has the raw material, the seed of sin. Every one of us, we have it inside of us. That prevents us from looking at anyone else and saying that they're worse than me. We can't say that. He writes this, not all of us grow up to be Hitler or Mussolini, but it's not for a lack of talent. See, given the right conditions, we too are capable of the same evil as those we consider the worst. Every one of us. Paul Tripp, in his book, Journey to the Cross, he describes a time at a Christian camp growing up when his counselor would gather all the boys together and they would read the book of Romans together. And he says, one night, he says, I was just pierced by the words of Romans, the third chapter in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what he says, he says this, he says, I climbed into my third tier bunk, but couldn't sleep. So I began to do what no nine-year-old boy ever wants to do in bed at camp. I began to cry. And I could not stop crying. I had been given an unexpected and undeserved gift, the knowledge of my sin. He calls the knowledge of sin an unexpected and deserved, an undeserved gift. And why does he do that? Because, see, the knowledge of sin is ultimately the very thing that drives you to the knowledge of the Savior. And then he continues, it's important to remember that the knowledge of sin is not a dark and nasty thing, but a huge and wonderful blessing. If you are aware of your sin, you are aware to it only because you have been visited by amazing grace. Folks, that's something to think about, and that's kind of deep. Now, I don't know if I've considered for quite a while now, you know, what a gift the knowledge of sin is in a person's life. I don't know that I've thought about that too often, but you see, our culture, he wants us to avoid um, knowledge of sin at all cost, and it wants us to replace it with victim mentality. You know that as well as I do. You know, they want to think, well, it's not my fault. You know, it's all these external things, you know, that are their ultimate problem with the world. You know, when God flips the switch, um, of grace in our lives, our eyes are open to the reality that our fundamental problem is rebellion from God. The same seed of wickedness that is in the people that we dislike is in us as well. God gives us the gift of knowledge of sin. When the times in London when they posed, the, they posed a question to their readers. And the question was this, what is wrong with the world? Well, you can imagine they got all kinds of, of responses back. But one of those responses 
stood out. Um, G.K. Chesterton, um, his took out because it said this, what is wrong with the, with the world? His answer was, dear sir, I am. Think about that. You know, the gospel basically should lead us to say right along with the Apostle Paul, I am the worst of sinners. And to see that the same raw material that has produced some of the world's greatest atrocities is alive and present within us. It's there. That seed is there. And the devil knows how to make it grow. You see. For application here. For your own good. I want you to fill out this acknowledgement. Either on the paper or either just in your mind. I used to be blank. But now I am blank. You know, I once was a blasphemer or a persecutor or et cetera. You know, these labels, they're identity labels. You know, I once was defined by my anger or I once was a racist or I once was prejudiced against white people or black people or Mexican people or Asian people or Japanese people or whatever. I once drew my entire identity from my sexuality. I once was addicted to pornography. I used to be filled with jealousy. I used to be completely self-absorbed. Well, what is it for you? What, think about this. What is it for you? If you had to name the false identities out of which God has rescued you, how would you name it? What would it be in your life? Another thing, God blank, even though I, what, you know, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. You know, now it's important here that we apply this to realize that Paul identified the root of his own problem as ignorance and unbelief. Well, how do you fix ignorance? You acquire knowledge. That's how you fix it. You know, what is the gospel? Well, Paul just shared it with us in one sentence there in verse 15. Look at that. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Um, now you know. That's, it's that simple. Now, there's a lot more to the gospel. We understand that. But on a basic level, you have now heard the gospel. Did you know that this message is such outrageously good news that even the angels of heaven long to hear it. That's what you'll find in 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, he came to save sinners. If you would, if you want to apply this to your life, if you want to learn something from this lesson, take some time and remember who you once were. You know, sometimes I think maybe we forget. You know, Paul, he could scarcely think of his past things without, without just erupting in praise to Jesus Christ. Um, you know, if you're finding yourself burned out on church or callous toward the gospel, take some time to remember your story. You know, I was once a blasphemer or a persecutor or a violent man or whatever. You know, who were you? What difference has God made in your life? Thomas Goodwin, an English pastor in the 17th century, he once wrote this letter to his son. He says, when I was threatening to become cold in my ministry and when I felt Sabbath morning coming um, and my heart 
not filled with amazement at the grace of God. Do you know what I used to do? I used to take a turn up and down among the sins of my past life. And I always came down again with a broken and contrite heart, ready to preach as it was preached in the beginning, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is kind of interesting. In a culture that wants to just universally affirm everyone's feelings and everyone's perceived identities, it's strange advice to walk down the road of your past sins. But for Thomas Goodwin and for the Apostle Paul, a heart that has experienced mercy can be swiftly reminded of the greatness of that mercy by remembering our past sins, by remembering who we once were and who we are now. You're going to be caught up afresh in a, you know, in a wonder at God's amazing grace. So when you stop to think about who we once were and who we are now, we have everything to be thankful for. Everything. Well, I'm going to stop right there with this passage because the next few verses talks about throwing some guys out of the church and we'll deal with that next week. But let's stop there. But last questions. What is your testimony? You know, what have you named your past sins? You know, would you talk, take a walk just for a moment down that road of your sins, you know, and what's your song of recovery? You saw Paul's story. You saw his song. What's our story? And what's our song? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the many examples that you give us in our scripture. And Father, we know that our story may not be very pretty, but Father, we understand that our song is wonderful. If we're honest with ourselves and honest with you, we have to say that our song is really wonderful because of what you did for us. Father, we can't even fathom the love that you had for us, that you would love us even after we do the things that we do. Father, we pray that we would be guilty of being about your business in a way that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name.